Let's pray, and then we'll jump into Nehemiah chapter 2. Father, thank you for today, and I pray that our hearts would be open to the things that you want to say to us. I pray that we would hear your voice through your word today, and what it means to live for you. I pray that we would leave here today encouraged and refreshed and challenged and inspired and revived and convicted, and you would show us what we're to be called to be a part of the walls that you've called us to build. And so, Father, I pray that everyone in this room would be impacted by your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So the title of the message this morning, you have notes here if you want to look along there. Uh, The title of the message is, what does it mean and what does it look like to live for God? As I was reading through Nehemiah here, That's what began to surface to me, that Nehemiah is living out his story. This is what it looked like for him to to live for God here. And the whole story begins with this. Begins with a question where Nehemiah asked, hey, how's it going in Jerusalem? And his friends came over to visit with him and kind of hang out there. And he said, hey, how's it going back in the hometown of Jerusalem? And that's where the whole story here begins. They said, hey, Nehemiah, it's like it's really not good. It's really bad. The gates are burned with fire. The walls are broken. The city's a mess. It's a tragedy what is happening there. It's like the entire city has post-traumatic stress disorder. It's like over the whole city there. It says, Nehemiah, it's in ruins here. Nehemiah, he, he's so moved by that that he loses it. And he says, I sat down like he just, he lost his equilibrium. It says, I sat down and for days I wept, I mourned and I fasted and I prayed to the God of heaven there. And God was going to change Nehemiah's story through his broken heart here. God was going to rewrite his story of what it looked like for Nehemiah to serve God there. So Nehemiah, for months now, he's wrestling with God. He's trying to figure out what he's supposed to do with this. He's beginning to reevaluate his life. And what emerges within him is he says, what am I doing What am I doing in this palace? I'm living in the wrong place and I've got the wrong boss. Says, And God began to stir his heart then that God had something else for him there in Jerusalem to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So we're going to answer the question this morning. What does it look like for you to live for God here and tease out the points out of Nehemiah here? And so if you have a Bible, you can turn to Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. The verses will also be on the screens. And many of the verses there are also in your notes, not all of the verses. So Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. If you want to stand to your feet, I will be reading there the first few verses there. Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Early the following spring, in the month of Nisan, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king his wine. And I never before appeared sad in his presence. So the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. Then I was terrified. But I replied, long live the king. How can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire. The king asked, well, how can I help you? And with a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied, if it please the king, and if you're pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. You may be seated. And so here's Nehemiah, and he says here, with a prayer to the God of heaven. I want us to see this, with a prayer to the God of heaven. Why does Nehemiah, he's asked a question by the king, and the king is right there, and he's been waiting for months. 
And rather than just blurt out what he wants to do, it says here, with a prayer to the God of heaven. And why is that? Could it be that Nehemiah understood that God has the power to change Artaxerxes' heart? That he can change everything there. And prayer is so powerful. It's so key here this morning that maybe there's a wall in front of you that needs to be rebuilt. What do you do? You you pray first here. You pray as Nehemiah did here. He prayed before he asked. He prayed before he answered. He prayed before he proceeded. See, Nehemiah would pray before he would say yes. Nehemiah would pray before he would say no. Nehemiah is going to pray before he moves forward here. Nehemiah would pray before he would react. He would pray before he would respond. This is who he is here. And so what do you do when you have people in your own life that are in great distress? I mean, what do you do when you feel powerless to change a predicament? So this is a critical moment for Nehemiah here. And what he does is, I want us to see this, as he just prays when he's asked the question, and he's looking eyeball to eyeball with the king of Persia, the most powerful man in the world, and he begins to pray while looking at him. And so it's like instinctive, it's spontaneous, it's just, it's reflexive, it's, it's who he was there. And so he begins to call on God because he knows that with God all things are possible. He knows that God is the great heart changer of the universe. So now Nehemiah, what he does is he lifts up this spontaneous prayer before he answers the question. And so all that to say this, what was it about Nehemiah? I mean, he developed in his life this, this habit, this holy habit that just came to expression wherever he was. And I think for us, the example and the inspiration is that we would do the same, that we would begin to build into our lives habits, holy habits, if you will, where like Nehemiah, you, you, you fire up these one, little one-liners throughout the day. You're praying throughout the day. And so here... This little millisecond prayer where he checks in with God here. And he says something like this. God, give me favor. God, help me. Or God, my life is on the line. Or God, this could be it for me. Or God, you can work through anyone. God, you can speak the words you want me to speak. He, He prayed something there before he answers. He knew the future was on the line. And he wanted God to direct his steps there. So with a prayer to the God of heaven. So here's the king waiting. And Nehemiah even though there's like some pressure there, he hits the pause button and he fires up a prayer to God there and calls on God. It's really something you want to build into your own life there to ask God for guidance. And so verse five here, he says, hey, here's what I want. He says, if it pleased the king, he said, I replied, if it pleased the king and if you're pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. And so Sometimes it's God's will for someone else to go. But what this tells us here is that other times it's for you to go. It's for you to say, I am the answer to the problem. I'm the answer. I am the solution to the problem here. And so Nehemiah, after four months of praying and seeking God and trying to lean into his will there, he senses the Lord's direction here. God puts a desire in his heart to do something about the problem there 800 miles away. And he says this, he says, God, after he's processing it, it was something like this. He says, God, you know what? I may be a cupbearer, 
but why don't you send me? I mean, I've never got my hands dirty in my life. Like, all I do is taste wine, and the finest food in the world, but maybe it's time to get some calluses on my hands. Maybe it's time for me, says God, I, want, I know you want me to rebuild the walls in Jerusalem. You want me to be about bricks. And Nehemiah comes to the conclusion there. He says, you know what? I can do bricks for God. I can do bricks for God. So then when he comes before the king, and the king asks him, so what are you asking? And he says, well, send me. Send me to Jerusalem. And so this is what Nehemiah concluded there from his four months while he was seeking God. Send me. And I wonder for us here this morning, if God at some point, like Nehemiah, wouldn't rewrite your story. Where you would say, God, let me go. Okay, that maybe uh, one thing is for someone else. That was for someone else. That was for them. But this is for me. God, send me. Let me go. Let me be the answer. Let me be the difference maker. Send me to the problem. Send me to the crisis. Send me to the broken walls. Send me there to the ruins. It says, send me to the place where, where I can help. Send me to the student's ministry. I was talking to somebody this week, and they said, God has just burdened my heart and put it on me that I'm to build in and help rebuild students. I says, well, well, why don't you do it? She says, well, I will. But she senses that God is calling her to rebuild. She says, I'm good at talking to people. I'm good at counseling, and that's what they need. I'm like, yeah, right on. Go for it. So send me to the students' church. Send me to kids' church. Send me, you know, to the sleeping bags to hand to our community. Last week, I had it pulled over to a gas station there. Uh, right down there in downtown Redlands, the Chevron station. And I pulled in, and there's a guy that sits under the tree. I see him all the time there. Now I honk to him because I've given him a few sleeping bags. So now I honk to him, and, and we wave. And so I went in on Thursday or so, pulled in, and I said, hey, I just want to, I saw your sleeping bag. I said, by the way, uh, you got that sleeping bag from, from the church there, but I have another sleeping bag. For it. it was wet and kind of uh, getting wrecked from, from the weather. They said, here's another sleeping bag. I said, oh, thank you so much. And so uh, anyway, but God gives us those. Send me to the homeless, like last week we talked about. Send me to maybe to reconcile a, an estranged family. Send me to that relationship. Send me so that I can help build something that is broken. That's what he was saying. So I would just ask you, God is writing your story. What is he telling you to, to, what is he sending you to? And so in your notes there, to live for God means the time comes where you take action. Remember, Nehemiah was praying for four months. I wept, I mourned, I fasted, I prayed for four months. But here now, God is calling him to take action. Not just to pray forever. Yes, pray, but then take action here. So verse 6. The king, and how insightful is this? Uh, Picture this in your mind with the queen sitting beside him. You know what's going on right there. You know, there's, uh, you know the queen is having some little sidebars with Nehemiah. You know that. You know the queen there is going to chime in. You know the queen was, was in the king's ear. Come on, you know that. That's just how the game works there. And so with the queen sitting beside him, you know the king's going to be on his best behavior too with Nehemiah there. Asked, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? And after I told him how long I would be gone, the king, a 
agreed to my request. See, that was a favor of God on Nehemiah here. Now, I want to point something out here. I want to point something out. Nehemiah had been praying, but the thing that we don't see is Nehemiah had been planning. This wasn't just all about prayer, but Nehemiah has so planned. He's planned in exquisite detail. What am I going to need? I'm going to need letters of protection. I'm going to need timber. I'm going to need uh, beams. I'm going to need letters from ASAP. I'm going to need an army there. I'm going to need all these things. And what I want us to see here is that though Nehemiah was a great man of prayer, and, and when we, we talk about that, he was also a great man of planning. So what he was able to do is he's able to, when the king asked him and the pressure's on, he's like, bam, one, two, three, four, five. These are all the things I need, king. He's able to articulate in exquisite detail everything that he needed here. So what I want us to see is this, is that Nehemiah, he requests letters from the, from the king uh, for building materials, for protection here, for safe travel. But prayer and planning go hand in hand. Prayer and planning go hand in hand here. So verse 7, I also said to the king, if it please the king, let me have letters addressed to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates, instructing them to let me travel safely through the territories on my way to Judah. So here he's thought through, I want us to see this, is Nehemiah has not only dreamed about it, God's rewriting his story, but he's planning for the whole uh, succession of that story. So what Nehemiah does is this. He makes this big, huge, audacious ask of the king. This is audacious. This seems just, would seem unrealistic. He's asking what? He's asking for a leave of absence. He's asking for the king to change his policy, to change kingdom policy. He's saying, king, I want you just to cut through all the administrative red tape. I'm going to need a boatload of volunteers. I'm going to need building materials. I'm going to need timber. I'm going to need beams. I'm going to need protection from the enemy. I'm going to need a small army here. And he's so organized. He's so anticipating his future needs here. He makes this big audacious ask of the king here. Well, why does he do that? Well, imagine if he didn't ask. Just imagine this. Imagine he embarks on an 800-mile journey. And there he, he's about to reach the province of Susa, the capital there uh, of Judah, where Jerusalem is. He's about to enter, and then one of the, the, uh, the people there that, that work there in the city says to him, hey, hey Nehemiah, like, where are you going? The official says, uh, I need to talk to you before you can enter into the city here. And he says, well, uh, I was hoping by faith uh, that I could, I could gain entrance into the city. And they're like, no, we don't think so. That's not going to do you any good around here. I need to see letters. I need to see your letters from the king here. Well... Uh, I don't have any letters. Then I'm sorry, you can't enter into the province here. We're not letting you anywhere here. You're going to have to have letters before I can let you pass. So then you think about this. Now he has to leave, go back to the king 800 miles, come back another 800 miles, 1,600 mile journey because he wasn't planning, because he wasn't organized there. And then imagine if he didn't have letters there allowing him to pass through the regions. And also he reaches uh, ASAP, 
who's a keeper of the king's forest. Because he needs massive amount of lumber and timber there. And so, but it's the king's lumber. And what is he going to do here when he reaches Asap? And Asap says, hey, Nehemiah, what can I do for you? I need lumber and I need lots of it. Can I see a requisition? There must be a requisition from the king to give you any lumber. Well, sorry, I don't have any. Then you're not going to get any lumber. So Nehemiah here, I want us to see you get the idea that he makes his, he plans and makes the big ask, makes an audacious ask. Um, uh, years ago, you may have heard of Napoleon Bonaparte. Napoleon Bonaparte years ago had conquerors, a great conqueror, a great military strategist. And so one day he's walking through and, and congratulating the troops for how they fought to conquer an island there and, uh, and lands that they had taken. And so and there was, and behind uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, there was his, uh, one of his officials there, one of his commanders that was behind him just to make sure nobody got weird and nobody said something that they shouldn't say. And so when he's congratulating the soldiers, and these were lower level, lower rank soldiers. Uh, it's a true story. And so he's congratulating them. And then one of the, the soldiers says to him, he says, um, Napoleon, he says, I have a request. And he says, and what is your request? He said, I request the island of Malta. And the commander's about to lose it there, but someone would make such an audacious ask of Napoleon. And Napoleon turns to him and says, yes, you may have it. And the commander said, how in the world could you, could you allow him to have the, the island of Malta, this low-level low level soldier? And he says, because he had the audacity to ask me for it, I gave it to him. And that's like what Nehemiah was doing. He had the audacity to ask. And the Bible says, you have not because you ask not. Sometimes you don't have the audacity to ask God. And so I wonder sometimes, are we praying prayers that they're so easy that they almost would never need God to, to move on our behalf? Almost no supernatural intervention would ever be needing. Or are we praying prayers that, that there's an audacity factor to them where the supernatural hand of God would have to come to expression and, and God would do more than we could ask or think? And so the king said, I'm going to build a wall for you. And, uh, and Nehemiah said, yeah, king, and, and you're going to pay for it. And you're going to pay for the lumber. And you're going to pay for the beams. And you're going you're to pay for the, the escort. And you're going to pay for the whole thing, king. And so uh, verse 8 here says, I want timber. And I want beams. And I want everything in the king's forest to help me rebuild the walls. King, I need your help. And so and because he had the letter and all, he could get that. And so in your note, or at the end of verse 8, I'm sorry, at the end of verse 8, he says, because the king granted me these requests, watch. Why? Because, what does it say? The gracious hand of God was on me. Everybody say it together. The gracious hand of God was on me. Oh, oh, that's the key. That's the key to the Christian life. That's what you want there. Nehemiah is living his life in such a way that the gracious hand of God was upon him. I remember when I first became a Christ follower, and I was hanging out with a with a pastor, a couple of pastors. And so, 
And this pastor, he did something for me that it really altered my life. It really changed my life. And what he did is every time he would introduce me, every time he would introduce me, he would say, oh, I'd like you to meet Rod. And then he would say this, God's got his hand on Rod. And I didn't really even know what that meant. But I, oh, good to meet you. And I think, God's got his hand on me. I don't know what that means. And so, uh, but it, it, uh, it got its way inside me but that I began to see my life that way. It became my identity. It became my identity that, hi, I'm, I'm Rod and God's got his hand on me. And so years later, I had a roommate named Frank. And Frank was a little rough around the edges, to put it mildly, okay? To put it mildly, Frank was a recovering alcoholic, and, uh, and he, lived with, he lived with me for a season. And so Frank would do things and say things that I would want to beat the snot out of Frank. I would get so mad at Frank, I'd say, Frank, I want to I I hit you right now, but I'm not going to. But I want to hit you. I want to slug you. I want to take you out. He was that guy. Okay, he would provoke me that bad. But then I would tell him this, because I, I, I heard that, you know, Rod, God's got his hand on you. And I would say, Frank, God's got his hand on you. And Frank would just look at me, kind of that glassy-eyed, you know, alcoholic, uh, recovering thing. He'd just look at me like, uh, and he, could, he didn't know what to do with it. He'd just kind of look at me. And, I, and I'd tell him over and over again, I'd say, Frank, I'd say, Frank, when he was ready to kill him, I'd say, Frank, God's got his hand on you. Ten years later, I hadn't seen him in ten years. And then I hear a knock on the door. I had no idea who's there. And I open the door, it's Frank. I said, Frank, it's great to see you. I said, how you been? What, what you been up to? He says, Rod, I just need to tell you something. He says, after all these years, I've realized something. I said, what's that, Frank? He says, I've realized that God's got his hand on me. I've been clean for, for all these years, and God's got his hand on me. And here it is. Nehemiah says, the gracious hand of God is upon me. So to live for God, this is what you want. In your notes here, God's hand is upon you. God's hand is upon you. And in your notes, when you seek God's plan, you seek God's plan. Like Nehemiah, you get God's hand. There's God's hand on Nehemiah, providing for Nehemiah everything that he needs here. Don't you want to live a life like that? Don't you want to have God's hand on your life? So Nehemiah asked not the king of Persia, not only allow, allow him to go fortify the city there that's already been conquered, but he asked him for a leave of absence. He asked him for timber. He asked him for the letters. So see there, evidence of God's hand upon you. When God guides, God provides. When God directs, God protects. And so when Nehemiah says, let me fortify the city, he says, I'm going to need timber, and the king provides. Verse 9. It says, and when I came to the governors of the promise west of the Euphrates, I delivered the king's letters to them. The king, I should add, that sent along army officers and horsemen to protect me. That's an armed escort for 800 miles for Nehemiah. Is that favor? Is that the hand of God upon someone or what? Now I want us to see this. I want to see this. Things are going pretty good. I mean, would you admit Nehemiah is like on a roll? He's got the king behind him. He's got all the letters. He's maybe he was strutting. I don't even know there. But Nehemiah is happy heading toward Jerusalem there. But now watch what it says. But 
when Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, and then later Geshem there, says, heard of my arrival. They were displeased that someone would come and help the people of Israel. See, this is the enemy. And the enemy now is profiting off Jerusalem there. The, the enemy now is opp- oppressing them. So they're mad. They're displeased here. And you know what Sanballat and Tobiah, they were profiting off of the people of Jerusalem there. So they know they're going to lose business. And so what we see here, here's what this is pointing to. Here's the take-home lesson for us here. Is that the enemy sees that the enemy is going to lose control. The enemy wants to maintain control. The enemy wants to keep them in bondage there. The enemy never wants to lose control of situations, people, or men, women. The enemy never wants to lose control of someone's mind there. The enemy never wants to lose control where there's the addictions going on, the addictions to porn, or the bondage there, or the habits. The enemy never wants to lose control here. So when you begin to break control of the enemy, the enemy will be displeased. So he wants you to stay in that habit. He wants you to stay in that addiction there. So watch verse 11. This is interesting to me. So I arrived in Jerusalem. 800 mile journey, at least a couple weeks or so. And that's it. Like I arrived in Jerusalem. Like, can you tell us anything about the journey there? I mean, it's been a couple weeks. We could probably fill a couple chapters here of the, the narrative of the story. I arrived in Jerusalem. Like, that's it. You mean, Nehemiah, it's been, it's been 800 miles, and you've been pursuing the desire of your heart, and four months before that there, and nothing is noted about your arrival here. It's like Nehemiah is like focused on Jerusalem there. He doesn't want to get lost in the detail there of that journey to get there, but it's all about I am now in Jerusalem. So Nehemiah continues the story, verse 12. Here's what I did. So here's now the work begins. Now it begins here. Okay, here's the official start point. Here's what he did. I slipped out during the night, taking only a few others with me. I had not told anyone about the plans God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. We took no pack animals except the donkey I was riding. That's kind of, kind of picture that in your mind. There's Nehemiah, and he's just he's kind of hobbling along on this donkey there for a few days. So I want you to see this. What Nehemiah does here, he says, this is a job. I just need my core team to do this job here. And they begin to walk through the broken circles, or circles of the city there, visit the gates and look at the city walls there. What he does here is he says, I just need my inner circle to begin this job. I don't need everybody to be involved. He's not going to tell everybody. He's not going to run his mouth about what's going on. He says, I just need to do a little investigation here. Verse 13, and after dark, I went through the valley gate, past the jackal's well, and over to the dung gate to inspect the broken walls and burned gates. So he says to inspect, and again, it's going to say, he's going to say in a few verses, to inspect. The Hebrew word Nehemiah uses is a medical word here. It's a medical word, which means this. It means to probe a wound here and discover the extent of the damage. 
So I want you to see what Nehemiah is doing here. He's probing the wounds of the city. Probing the wounds there. And he's, and he's, he's sorting out the extent of the damage there that has been done. And he, and he purposely picks this word. And then he repeats the word in just a few verses. Because the city needed to be probed. Because the damage needed to be assessed. Because the needs had to be appropriately calculated before they could begin. And notice what he says here. He's probing all this at the dung gate. Now, the dung gate, you can imagine what that means. Can you imagine what that means? It's not the dream gate. It's the dung gate. Also known as the garbage gate. I'm guessing, I'm just guessing, probably wasn't prime real estate in that day. You know what I mean there? Uh, probably not a popular part of the city. Where do you live? Yeah, I live at 214 Dungate Avenue. Oh, you live there. Oh, I don't think I'm going to be coming over. And so, because Dungate, it wasn't a popular destination for tourists. Because see, at the Dungate, it was the original temple there. That's where all the garbage, that's where all the ash, that's where all the sacrifices, smelly, dead ashes, of that's where they all went out there. And so, if you lived in Dungtown, I'm guessing that wasn't a very popular place to come and visit. It was messy. It was smelly. It was ugly. It was hard. But that was the place where the garbage got taken out. How do you know it's important to take out the garbage? See, without, without the dung gate, there would be no health in the city. Without our own personal taking out of the garbage, that which defiles us, that which could destroy us, without that... We could be destroyed here. And so he begins to inspect again, probing. I want us to see this. He's probing and he's inspecting. What I want us to see is this. Is that Nehemiah, the inspection that he did, that is what determined uh, his direction. Inspection determined his direction there. And so he was inspecting carefully. And I just wonder, just kind of a side point here. I wonder sometimes in our own life, in our own journey, remember, Nehemiah, this is a, how to live for God. I wonder sometimes if we don't need to do a little more inspecting. Inspecting maybe about the relationship we're going to enter into. Inspecting about the per- person we're going to date. Inspecting about maybe uh, the job that you're going to take there. Because sometimes things need a little more inspection, probing, before we determine our direction there. And so, verse 14. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but my donkey couldn't get through the rubble. What a picture that is. He's got to dismount because there's so much rubble. The city is going to repair. It says, though it was still dark, I went up to the Kidron Valley. Here's the word again, inspecting, probing there the wall before I turned back and entered into the valley gate. So, I want us to see what Nehemiah is doing here. This is personal for him. And he's personally inspecting. This is like uh, advanced intelligence gathering here, doing his homework before he begins to begin the project here. And so he's gathering facts, gathering facts. I wonder sometimes if we don't do that. I wonder sometimes if, if, if we don't want to like know all the facts. We don't want to probe and all that because... Because sometimes if I get all the information about the situation, then I might be obligated there. 
Sometimes information invites obligations that we can be, well, I don't, you don't have to tell me. I don't, I don't really want to know there. But Nehemiah, there he's, in, he's circling the walls on horseback in the middle of the night, and he's looking at the broken stones, and he's looking at the mortar, and he's looking at the burned gates, and he's, and he's taking inventory of everything that's going on there and continuing to probe. And I really believe, this is my personal opinion, is that as he was doing that, he was, he was feeling uh, the brokenness of the city and absorbing the, the pain of this, uh, this painful predicament there. And Nehemiah begins to, to almost enter in into what happened there. And so that it was more than just their problem. It's, we talked about this last week. It became his problem. And this is, this is personal for Nehemiah. I believe that he was, he was probing and walking and evaluating everything that, that it touched his heart and it, it transformed him. So verse 16 the city officials didn't know I had been there or what I was doing. See, everybody doesn't need to know, for I had not yet said anything to anyone about my plans. I had not yet spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests and nobles and officials, or anyone else in the administration. So here's a picture of Nehemiah evaluating the city. He's surveying. He's evaluating. He's probing. But then after all that, after he saw and he was accurate and could, could process it here, then what he does is he calls a meeting. And he takes this leave of absence. And now he's ready to tell them all. If he's got the plan clear in his mind. Now he's ready to say, hey, let's roll, baby. We're going to win this thing. We can do this. And begins to fire up the troops. So after he faces the facts, after he, he faces reality, after he realized, hey, we are in trouble. We are facing tough times. See, people can say, oh, well, I have faith. Well, faith won't fix if you don't face the facts. Faith cannot fix what you're not willing to face. So Nehemiah here, he faced the facts. And then his faith came into expression. And so now he's going to talk to these people that have been in decades of discouragement, generations of discouragement. It's all that they know. And now Nehemiah is going to challenge them. He's going to, he's going to inspire them. And I want us to see here how he does this. This is huge. This is huge leadership principle of, uh, 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 that we're going to see here of what he does. Rather than say, hey, you guys, hey, I can help you. I have nothing to do with the mess, but you're in a mess. No. Nehemiah says this, he says, hey, we're in this mess. We're in this together here. And he uses the words, we and us, not you and them, we and us. And so he's giving them this godly pep talk, this inspiring pep talk. And he says this, you can read it there in your Bible. It says, come, let us build we can do this here, he says, but he's including himself, this leadership principle, he's including himself in the predicament that we're in this together. And so, and what he's doing here that we don't see in the, in the past is what he's doing, he's asking them to tremendous sacrifice. Most of them are going to have to leave their homes. Most of them are going to have to travel here. Most of them are going to have to spend significant amounts of time away from home. So this isn't an easy ask for, for what he's doing here. And he says, hey, guys, God is in this. 
And he's going to say in the next verse, let me tell you what God, uh, what God did for me. Let me tell you what God did for the king. Let me tell you about God's hand upon me. And so he says, look, teamwork, baby. Teamwork's going to make the dream work. I really believe this, is a, this was an identity-shaping moment for, uh, for the whole chapter, for the whole book of Nehemiah. He says, this is our time. This is our time to shine. This is our time to, to rise and build, and we can do it. Verse 18, watch. This is what he does. And then I told them about the gracious hand of God has been upon me. And about my conversation with the king. My audacious conversation with the king. It says, hey guys, you don't think we can do that? Look, the king is for us. What do you mean the king's for us? The king has never been for us. Yeah, this is what the king did. The king gave me letters of protection. The king's given me timber. The king has given me the beams, the whole forest of Asaph. It's ours, guy. And they're beginning to, to, to be encouraged and be inspired and be fired up there and realize that, well, perhaps there's hope. Like the earthly king is for us here. And he says, and look, I don't want you to know about God's hand upon me and what that looks like. And so he's, he's inspiring them. He says, yeah, we can rebuild the wall. We can give them. And he's inspiring hope to the, to the troops there. Now what happens and what you can almost inspect, expect again, verse 19. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshev the Arab heard of our plan, they scoffed contemptuously, what are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king, they asked there. So here's the enemy again. Enter the enemy. And I want us to see this here because Word got around Persia that this cupbearer from, from uh, 800 miles away is going to come to our city here. And they heard that, and so they're ticked. They're angry. They are so upset about this because uh, they were formidable foes. They're organized foes. This is, not, this is not an easy enemy here. They don't want the wall completed there. And the enemy, I, wanted, I want you to see this. Okay? All that to say this. The enemy wants to discourage you. God puts something in your heart. God begins to rewrite your story. God shows you something you're to rebuild. The enemy comes to discourage you. Like, I'm like, who are you to think you could be involved with the rebuilding of a wall? I mean, they're going to come down hard on Nehemiah in a couple chapters here. And so the enemy would not leave them alone. As soon as they said, hey, we're going to rise up and we're going to build... The enemy's been dormant. There's no talk there of the enemy. Now the enemy becomes active, and the enemy rises up to oppose. And, uh, and so they're laughing at him. They're mocking him. They're hating him. They're ridiculing him. Have you ever been mocked? Have you ever been ridiculed? Have you ever been made fun of or laughed at when you said, I feel like this is something that I'm supposed to do. This is part of my story. When I, years ago, when I was going to start a Saturday night church uh, called Saturday Night Life, when I began to tell some people, they would laugh at me. And they would say, like, <laughs> who's going to go to church on Saturday night? And I would say, well, we'll find out. And I had a pastor, like, the founding pastor of the church, when I told him, you know what he said to me? I won't say any names, but his name was Don McClure. <laughs> and you know what he said to me when I told him? Oh, do Saturday night? He said, Ron, who's going to come to church on Saturday night? And I said, Don, 
I guess we'll find out. And uh, months later, we were packed with people, but God was in it. God had my hand on me. But you're going re- to you're you're face discouragement. But Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, they rose against me here. And so, see, they began to accuse. And see, and that's, what, that's what will happen to you. Like, really? You, you, you really think you, you could do that? I mean, you've messed up. You know, how bad are you? And throwing shame on them. You're not fit to work on the wall. You're like a cupbearer. What, what do you know about bricks? And so this is what is happening. And so you're going to feel unworthy. You're going to feel inadequate. You're going to feel unqualified. Welcome exactly who God is looking for, just like Nehemiah. And so in your notes there, when you live for God, you need to be very clear about this. You will face opposition. You will face opposition. And so what I'd like us to see here as I begin to conclude here, what I'd like us to see is this. How does Nehemiah respond? And how should you respond to opposition? What I want to see here is Nehemiah doesn't get all defensive and, 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 and try to dialogue with them. What Nehemiah does here is he, he doesn't even respond to the critic. Uh, he, he declares... Hey, well, here's what God can do, and here's what's going to happen here. And, and he says, you know, uh, my God, look at verse 20. I replied, the God of heaven is going to help us succeed. In other words, God is on our side. He says, you guys, you're just a bunch of strangers. You're not God's people. And Nehemiah, what I love about this and what I, what I want us to see, and this is what you want to you kind of build this kind of, disposition or spirit into your own life. Nehemiah is absolutely undeterred. He was like this. Who are you, Nehemiah? Nehemiah was like this. My God. He says, the God of heaven is going to help us build. And you feel his conviction. You feel the strength of his. He says, we his servants, continue, we'll start rebuilding the wall, but you, yeah, you, you have no shared legal right or historic claim in Jerusalem. What he's saying is, hey, get out of our way. We're going to do this here. Nothing's going to stop the work. And he says, and we will succeed. See, we're gonna, uh, success is something that we all desire. Nehemiah desired success here. You want success. I want success. And so he says, look, there's going to come a time and we're going to build. We're going to have success because God is for us. Because God's hand is upon me here. And so I want you to recognize this. That the time is going to come when you are going to feel, you are going to feel opposition. But you remember Nehemiah. You remember how Nehemiah pushed through that and what he did here. And so what a great story and what a great chapter. I can't wait. I just can't wait. So excited for chapter 3. Read ahead. We're going to do that actually be a couple weeks here. It's so great. So please do not miss Nehemiah and invite a friend. So let's stand to our feet and I'd like us to pray together. And so Father, thank you for Nehemiah. Thank you for the incredible gift of his story that really intersects with our story. Thank you, Lord, what we learn about facing opposition, about the hand of God upon us and how to live for you. Thank you, Lord, for the inspiration to the day comes to take action, to pray, but to plan, to time comes even to take out the trash at the dung gate. So, Father, we pray that you would do what only you can do. So, Father, that you're not finished with us yet. 
Thank you that we are called to, to build a wall. And we pray that we would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so let me say this. Let me say this. I just want to give you one last, one last thought. Just one last thought here. Why did we give away last week 140 sleeping bags to our community? Why? Like Nehemiah, we're saying, pass me another brick. And see, why did this weekend on Friday and Saturday, 25 people from Sanctuary went down to Mexico and Ensenada and on a landfill built a home for a homeless family? Hand me another brick. Why did last year we sent teams to Houston after Hurricane Harvey? Hand me another brick. Why are we sending students to camp, summer camp? Hand me another brick. Why is it that we feed students from this school, another school? Hand me another brick. You see, like, like Nehemiah, we've been blessed. We've been blessed, but the blessing has come with, with a burden to do something. It's a glorious burden that we get to carry in our generation. You see, God has something for you. God has a wall that he wants you to build, something that he wants you to be a part of. In a couple of weeks, we're going to hear from TAPS. TAPS there is in Zimbabwe. And TAPS is, he's at St. Joseph Orphanage, and he's sending me videotapes from St. Joseph's. I'm going to, we're going to pray, play one in two weeks. Why is TAPS there at the orphanage? Hand me another brick. See, and all of you have a wall. See, all of you, you're like Nehemiah in that place. See, God has called you to something to do, to take action. God has called you to all. God has called you to build something of his purpose here. Maybe God is calling you to your family. Maybe God is calling you to the, the broken walls of, of a marriage. Maybe it's your marriage here. Maybe God is calling you to, to repair the broken wall with you and a, someone else in a relationship or your spouse there. I don't know. Maybe it's a wall between you and some person. Or maybe it's a wall of your integrity. God wants to rebuild you. Maybe God wants to. It's the Dungate story. There's garbage to be taken out. God wants to, to rebuild your personal purity. See, God is a, is a God who is about rebuilding. And everyone has a wall that you're called to. A place, some ruins that is for you. So I just want to say this. I just want to encourage you this way. Don't miss your wall. Don't miss your wall. And have an attitude like Nehemiah. Yeah, God, pass me another brick. I want to be about your story. I want my story, God, to be about your story. You see, this is how we live the life. In Jesus' name, amen.